I will be reading from Romans eight seventeen through 27. And if children, their heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provide with suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fulfillity, not willing, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to keep deep for words. And he, he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, I really feel like if we were to walk out of the doors right now, we could walk out saying that we've been in the presence of Jesus. Don't you think? It's been a good morning so far. Um, you will take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, and as you're turning there, verses 17 through 27, I wonder if you've ever asked this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever asked that? Why do bad things happen to good people? I look out over this congregation, and we all know the stories that have taken place over the past year and a half, two years of our church. The cancer that multiple people have gone through or are going through and are fighting tooth and nail for survival. For the children in our congregation who have died within the past year, year and a half for the families that suffer the loss of that, for the parents that have died, for the sisters, for the grandchildren? Why do bad things happen to good people, Christians, people who walk with the Lord, who love Jesus? Why do bad things happen to them? Infertility, the miscarriages, the struggles of life. Why are they not done? Why do we still endure these things? Have you ever asked this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Or you may have asked it on a little bit more of a personal note. Instead of why do bad things happen to good people, instead, your question has been simply looking up at the heavens and saying, why me, God? Have you ever asked that? Why me, God? That was the question that Christopher Hitchens, minus the God part of this, why me? Uh, that was the question that Christopher Hitch Hitchens asked in an interview that was done with him uh, by Vanity Fair prior to his death in 2010. 
Some of you will know who he is, others you may, may not. He sort of ran around with Richard Dawkins and other atheists, atheist apologists, really fighting for atheism in, in uh, the past 15 years or so. Well, Christopher Hitchens contracted cancer. And in 2010, uh, just before he died of cancer, Vanity Fair did an interview with him. And this was his, uh, his quote, what he said to Vanity Fair magazine. Christopher Hitchens said, I am badly oppressed by a gnawing sense of waste. I had real plans for my next decade and felt I'd worked hard enough to earn it. Will I really not live to see my children married? To watch the World Trade Center rise again? Then he says this, to the dumb question, why me? The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, Why not? You see, if you are an atheist, or if you are not a follower of Jesus, there is no purpose to your suffering. There is no hope. There is no plan. There is no good. It just simply is. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ then the promise of God to you found in Romans 8 this morning is that there is significant purpose. There is an awesome and mighty plan. And there is great hope for you. And so it is my hope that this morning you will be encouraged by this very thing, whether it is suffering that you've endured in the past, are enduring today, or will endure in the future, which covers everyone in this room that you would be encouraged that there is hope for those who follow Jesus. And if you are not someone who follows Jesus, that you would be encouraged this morning to cry out to Jesus that these things might be true of you also. And so in our passage, we will see Paul describe this for us through three groanings that take place in the world around us. Three things that groan. Creation groans. We groan. And the Holy Spirit groans groans. And all three of these groan for glory. Creation groans for glory. We groan for glory. And the Holy Spirit groans for glory. And as a matter of fact, you might say, no groan, no glory. Instead of the old adage, no guts, no glory for the Christian, no groan, no glory. And I hope we walk out of this place this morning with that on our lips. No groan, No glory. We get glory through our groanings. And so, how do we see this? Creation groans for glory. Verses 18 and following. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What does it mean that creation groans? Some of you have heard this story. I shared it a couple years ago. I'll share it again. Danielle and I used to live in a very, very old house. 
As a matter of fact, we moved out of it in December and have a house that's a little newer, and we're glad for that. Our old house was 115 years old. 950 square foot mansion. It was really something to live in for seven years. Uh, and so thankfully we've been able to move out from it. But the, things about, the thing about an old house, if you've ever lived in one or do live in one, is that an old house has quirks to it, doesn't it? So there's the busted sewer line underneath the house. There was the uh, draftiness in the wintertime. And then there were the random weird smells that would just happen. And never really knew where any of them came from except for one particular time when this weird, gassy smell, as best I could describe it, began to emerge in our bedroom. So we're doing everything we can try to figure out what this is, Febreze, whatever, trying, and it just stays, it just stays. So we begin to realize that it's isolated to one spot on the carpet next to Dan- Danielle's side of the bed. <laughs> and it got so bad that if she took her clothes and laid them on this spot, that her clothes the next morning had absorbed this smell, and they reeked. They were done. You had to wash them. So I pull the carpet back, and I, I look in the plywood and everything, and there's just nothing. There's no, you know, may, maybe mold. There's no mold. You can't see anything. Look underneath. Pull back the insulation. Crawl up in the crawl space. Nothing from there, but you stick your nose to it, and, man, it reeks. Bad stuff. So, I mean, what do you do? So... I take plastic and just spread it straight across it, staple the stuff down, put the carpet back down. Don't have to, like, you can't smell it, no problem, right? That's the way a guy thinks anyway. And Danielle's, I don't know if it's going to do, Andrew. It's fine, Danielle, it's just fine. You know, we can't smell it anymore. And we didn't, we didn't smell it for a whole year. You know, I'd taken care of things until the smell came back. And with it, some soft spots in the floor. Danielle's saying, there's some soft spots over here. No, there's not. You're just making it up. And I wish I was joking about this, but that's how I respond to things sometimes. And um, so eventually pull the carpet back, remove my plastic, termites. That's actually the smell that termites produce whenever they defecate after eating all the wood and everything. It's this gassy type of, a, of an odor. The entire floor on that side of the bedroom was compromised so bad that I could take my hand and just with my force press through all the way to the, to the cross face. Had Danielle stepped through that, we probably would not be married today. <laughs> That's what it means that creation groans. That sort of decay and corruption that exists in the, uni- in the world around us is what it means that creation groans. Or as Paul says earlier in this, in this uh, verse 23, or uh, verse uh, 19 rather, that creation was subjected to futility. Or other translations say corruption, or decay, or frustration. And that's a really mild example of it. You know, uh, uh, termites in a floor is a mild exa- example of the corruption in the world around us. But we look... And we see more than that, do we not? We see, a, a, we see a, a tsunami sweep across Indonesia and 250,000 people lose their lives. We see 
a Hurricane Katrina sweep across New Orleans and Mississippi and Alabama and nearly 2,000 people die. We see an earthquake in Haiti and 160,000 people die. The world is subjected to futility. That's what it means that creation groans. That's the world in which we live. So the question emerges for all of us is why is this the world in which we live? Why is there so much corruption around us? And the answer that Paul gives is an interesting one. He says that the world was subjected to futility, meaning that someone did this. This is the result of a choice of somebody that the world is as it is. So who did this? Who subjected the world to futility? Well, have three options. Satan. Well, Satan does not tend to do anything with the motivation of hope. And Paul says that creation was subjected to futility in hope. So let's rule out Satan. What about Adam? Did Adam do this with his sin? Same thing. Adam didn't subject it in hope. So what's that leave for us? Well, Genesis chapter 3 provides for us some insight here. This is after Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden. And we read beginning in verse 17. God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Question. Who subjected the creation to futility? It was in response to Adam's sin. But it was God who did this. God did this. He is the reason there is so much corruption in the world around us. So why would God do this? I mean, note well, God did not have to do this. This is not the necessary consequence of sin. God did not have to put hurricanes in the world to deal with Adam's sin. But he did. Why? Answer. Because he subjected it with a goal in mind, hope. And what was that hope? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's design for suffering in the world was so that humanity, lost sinful humanity, might be redeemed. Now listen to me. If suffering did not exist in the world... If the world was not the type of place where corruption existed, Jesus could not suffer for your sins. That's the reason creation was subjected to futility, so that by suffering, Jesus could suffer on your behalf, and you, by trusting in him, could be set free into the glory of the children of God. That's why the world was subjected to futility. No groan, no glory. And Paul describes it. He says creation subjected to futility 
waits eagerly with eager anticipation for the revealing of the sons of God. And the word picture in the Greek language is as if the creation is standing on tiptoe, looking over to see when, when will God's children actually enter into that full and final rest that he has for them, that full and final glory. And so that's what creation is doing. Creation waiting eagerly for our revealing. But we don't see that yet, do we? Because we ourselves, God's children, we groan as well within ourselves. Creation is groaning, and we too, we groan with the pains of suffering that we, that we, that we have in this life and all of the corruption that we experience. And so why is that? Well, first of all, what is this glory to which we're aiming at? Glory is a word that is not always easy to understand, and there's several ways in which the Bible uses it. But I think the most simple way of thinking of it here is that the glory that's in store for us is, God's, is the fulfillment of God's design for what you were meant to be in the first place. So instead of corruption and decay and pain and suffering, it's freedom and joy and peace and pleasure in fulfillment of that fellowship with Jesus for eternity. That's what it is that we have a glory in front of us, and that's what we await. But for now, we too groan within ourselves. And it was necessary that we groan because in verse 17, as Paul says, that we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So creation was subjected to futility so that Jesus could suffer on our behalf. But in the same way, in order for us to experience that glory that God has in store for us, Paul says that we too have to suffer with Jesus. Our life has to have that element of experiencing the sufferings of Christ in this life. Why is that? I think 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It should be up on our screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, gives us a very, very insightful uh, notion as it relates to this. Listen to this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Listen to this. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. I'm going to read that one more time for us. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice the parallel that's going on in, these two, in, this, in this verse. Our current affliction is regarded as light in comparison to the weight of the glory that's in store for us. Our current affliction is regarded as momentary in comparison to the eternal glory that's in store for us. And those are remarkable things. But what I think is even more remarkable is this. Paul says that this light momentary affliction, which we have now, is actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What does that mean? I often picture God, the Bible pictures him this way as well, as a potter. 
The book of Jeremiah, God describes himself this way, and as a potter, we are his pottery, and we are sitting on a spinning wheel as he spins us around, and he shapes us, and he molds us into the vessel that he desires for us to be. And he uses various things to shape us and mold us into what he desires, and some of those things are relationships with other people that we have, and accountability relationships, and Bible studies, and quiet times, and prayer, and church, and various other things that God brings into our life to shape us and to mold us. What this passage says is that in addition to those things, God does something else that is special, more significant, and more powerful. While he spins us and while he molds us, at certain times, he stops with the spinning, and he stops molding, and he begins to reach down on the inside of that clay, and he begins to remove clay from within so that that pot now has the capacity to hold something, to hold what it was designed for. Suffering is exactly that. This passage tells us that God uses suffering in our lives so that we might have, now listen to this, an increased capacity to experience the glory of Jesus Christ. That means that the suffering that you are enduring is creating within you a greater ability to worship Jesus in eternity. That means the suffering we endure makes us a deeper, wider pot to contain the glory of God. It is producing within you a greater capacity to experience Jesus Christ both in this age and the age to come. For now, we have the first fruits of the Spirit that gives us a taste of what that's like. And we experienced a very small sliver of that just 15, 20 minutes ago as we worship Jesus in this place. And we experienced what, it's, what it must be like, just a glimpse of what it must be like to worship Jesus for eternity. And and, and that's just the first fruits. And suffering prepares us that we might experience that on a deeper, more robust level for eternity. That's why, brothers and sisters, we groan within ourselves. Because no groan, no glory. Suffering is a necessary instrument to make us what God wants us to be. To be able to worship and endure his glory forever and ever. So creation groans for glory, and we groan with pain, with cancer, with death, with plague for glory, because it's producing that for us. But there's a third that groans for glory also, and that's the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, I have to find it back again, turn back. Romans 8, verses 28, verses 26 and 27. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what, the mind, uh, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When we suffer, 
Those of you who have endured this on some of the more significant, deep, deep levels of suffering that some people go through may identify with this. Paul says that we are weak and that at times we actually do not even know how to pray. Our suffering reveals that part to us, that we just do not have the strength We don't have the know-how. We don't have the ability to pray as we ought to. As a matter of fact, sometimes suffering is so significant that we even lose the ability to pray just altogether. We grow so numb and wounded and afraid that we just don't know what to do. And I say this because I have experienced this very thing. Most of you, perhaps not all of you, know that in February of 2011, my father, Marshall Walker, took his own life. I remember driving up the hill to my parents' house, and I remember seeing the ambulance at the very top of that hill, seeing my oldest brother standing up there with the paramedics. And I remember turning my blue van into my parents' driveway. And I remember walking through the garage and into the rear entrance of my parents' house, opening the door and seeing my mom and my wife seated there in their dining room, Danielle holding my mom as my mom wept. And I walked towards them and embraced them and we wept together. And I remember that that was the easy part. Because in the days and the weeks and in the months that followed, that grief that I felt was followed by guilt and anger and confusion. And I remember countless times kneeling down beside my bed. And I remember simply not knowing what to ask, not even having the ability to. I remember a pastor saying, what, what passage of scripture are you holding on to right now? And I told him, I said, I'm, I'm not. I'm just not. And I don't, I say this now, I think, why did I not? I just didn't, I just didn't have the ability to. I, it wasn't in me. I didn't have the strength to. The only thing I could pray at that time, and I just pray this over and over and over again, is help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. That's it. That was, that was my prayer. Do you know what this passage promises me at that time? Or what it promises you in what you're going through right now or what you have gone through or what you might go through in the future? It doesn't merely promise that, as it says in verse 17, that the current suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory. It doesn't merely say that. It doesn't merely say that the suffering that I was enduring or the suffering that you are enduring is producing in you a greater capacity to experience Jesus Christ. It doesn't merely say that. What it says is that when I didn't know how to pray, that the Holy Spirit took it up for me. It says, interestingly enough, that the Holy Spirit does so with groanings too deep for words. What does it mean when we groan? 
Does it not mean that we are in pain, that we are suffering? This means, brothers and sisters, that we, when we are in the depths of our suffering and our pain, that the Holy Spirit himself is in pain, suffering along with us. And the pain that the Holy Spirit endures with us because he has indwelled us and we have become one together when we follow Jesus motivates the Holy Spirit to then take our need before the throne of God and say, on behalf of Lynn Bergen, or on behalf of Danny Hampton, or on behalf of Kevin Burleson, or on behalf of Nikki Brinkley, or on behalf of Gina Holland, Lord, they don't know what's going on. They are in so much pain. And so I'm praying, they are hurting, I am praying for them that they see you in this and that they be encouraged in this and that you make them strong and that you answer this according to your will. And it says here, the awesome thing is that the Holy Spirit knows precisely what the will of God is. And so he makes request in line, squarely in line, with God's will for your life. And you better believe that when the Holy Spirit prays on your behalf, that God answers those prayers. No groan, brothers and sisters, no glory. For the Christian, what significant hope you have in suffering. I know, I know, I know that there is no joy in it right now. But God means for you in time to look back on this and say thank you for the wounds that you inflicted and for the wounds that you healed because I now know Jesus in ways I have never dreamed of before. And I am free as the promise is you will be free you will be glorified. There will be no more pain. And what you endure now is getting you ready for just that. And so creation groans for glory. And we ourselves, within ourselves, groan for glory. And the Holy Spirit groans for glory. Have you ever asked why do bad things happen to good people? Well, for the Christian... It is clear God has purpose in it. No groan, no glory. Let's pray.